I love that song. You like that one? I love that. I, I remember the first time we did that song here at Lakeside, I saw it before I heard it. I saw the lyrics before I heard the music. And I'm looking at the lyrics up in my office, you know, before I was coming down for, for the weekend gatherings or something, and I'm reading them, and I'm like, you are good, you are good, oh. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm praying through this, and I'm thinking about Josh, and I'm like, this song is not going to work, man. It's like, you are good, you are good, oh. But it's not like that, right? When you sing the song... And the, and the team leads us to sing that song, and you go, you are good, you are good, oh. And it gets you in your soul. You go, look, God, you are good. All the time. Oh. I love that part. I have to tell you, though, that song confuses me. Because we get to this other part that says, you're never going to let me down. You're never going to let me, never going to let me, never. Like, do we have to keep saying it? You're never going to let me down. Is that your experience? Is that your story with God, that God never lets you down? Because... Because don't you have things like I do in your life? Don't you have things sometimes that break in your life? I mean, every one of us in our lives, we experience loss, and we experience pain, and we experience grief, and we experience fear. All of us. They say the greatest fear in the world is speaking in public. Maybe, but I think more likely the greatest fear is the fear of loss. Because we all have these fears of loss in our life. We have, we have a fear of loss of wealth. We, have a, we, we fear the loss of health. We fear the loss of friendships. We fear the loss of territory. We fear the, fear the loss of, of property. We fear the loss of our children. We fear the loss of our family or our friends or our relationships. We fear these losses, and they pile in on us. And in the midst of all that fear, it's good for us to come together and stand before our God and say, God, you are good. You are good. Oh. Jesus, I pray for us together today as we come into this spot and then we come into this point in our journey as, as a church together. And it's such a weird thing, Lord, to have this many people involved together in this process of worshiping you because every one of us is in a different spot in our walk with you. Well, none of us have arrived at the end of the journey and uh, at, at any stage of the journey that we're in, we find ups and downs and we find these gains and we find losses. But Lord, what we believe is that you are with us in the midst of all of those. And for that, we're grateful. And for that, we sing to you. And Lord, we sing songs like this to you because they are true about you and they also affirm our faith in you. And so, again, today, we affirm our faith in you, Lord, 
We count on the fact that you are good, you are good. Lord, lead us in the conversation you want to have with us today about fear and about power and about how you work in our lives. We ask in the name of Christ, our good Savior, good, amen. So we're in a series these days called King Me. Like, King Me, I got to the end of the line, King Me. Or you can, you can, you can emphasize it differently. You can go, King Me, which is where we are in our culture a lot. King Me, I'm in charge, I'm the boss, I'm the ruler of my own life. King Me. So however you want to emphasize that, you can, but we're talking about kings and we're, we're talking, in the conversation, we're talking about the first two kings in the nation of Israel. There's King Saul and there's King David, and they are not the point of our story. They're just the backdrop for our story because the, the point of the story is what does God want to do in us? How does God want to shape us today? How does God want to move us forward today in our relationship with him? That's the point. That's where we're heading I want to I think through a piece of the story of the man who would become the first king of Israel, King Saul. I want you to see his story. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10. And so if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up to that? Uh, if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, we always encourage you to bring one because we believe in the Bible, God tells his story. In the Bible, God invites us into his story. And so we'd love you to bring a Bible and follow along. It, it helps you get used to reading the scripture on your own. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we've got some at the exits on the way out. You can grab one and bring it next time. Or you can download it on your phone or tablet. That's all cool too. And you're always just welcome to listen if you want. That's fine. First Samuel chapter 9 verse 1 says this. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia of Benjamin. You don't have to remember all that part. No, no worries. Just remember this. There's a man who came from the tribe of Benjamin in the nation of Israel. His name was Kish, and he was a man of standing. We'll come back to that part. Next verse. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So, let's stop there. Here's Kish, right? And he's a man of standing, which in the Hebrew language, the, the phrase means someone who's strong, or someone who's mighty, or someone who's a champion in this world. On the plus side. On the negative side, that same phrase could refer to someone who tends to magnify himself, who tends to act out of pride, and who tends to be sort of a tyrant in his life. That person also can be a, a man of standing. So we're not really sure exactly how Kish is a man of standing. Maybe he's a good man with all this power and he uses it for good. Or maybe he's a man of power, but he uses it for his own purposes and puts others aside or down in the process. We're not really sure, but somehow he's a man of standing. And he has a son. Son's name is Saul. And he is as handsome a man as can be found in all the nation. And he's a head taller than everybody else. I wish. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I was golfing with my buddies out with Josh and, uh, and Sean and my friend Charles. We were out golfing together. And I, I'm like, oh, this is too good. 
hey, Josh, I said, Josh, take a picture of this. I, you, I want to know I was standing in a hole. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah, yeah, well, not too deep, but. He's, when he, they're tall. They're like taller than the average man. Yeah. All right, never mind. All right, so you look, <laughs> I don't know about what it's like to be tall. I don't, I don't get it. I don't know what it's like to walk through life with your head in the clouds or any of that. I don't, I don't you know. I'm not sure, but I always think if you're tall, you've got power. You've got people's attention for sure. And for Saul, that's not how it worked out. For Saul, it, was always, it, it, it always just seemed awkward. Like he didn't want to have to duck going through doors, and he didn't want people looking at him when he stood up and things like that, but that's where he was. So he's the son of Kish, who's a man of standing and power, but here's this tall, handsome young man, but it always felt sort of Awkward for him to be that. One day, Kish's donkeys got loose. I don't know how many donkeys he had, but they got loose. And I don't know if they got loose before. I, it sort of seems like maybe they were in the habit of getting loose, but the donkeys get loose. And Kish says to his son, Saul, Saul, the donkeys got out. We got it. Someone's got to go get the donkeys. I want you to go get the donkeys. And I can just hear Saul going to Kish. No, not me again. Why does it always have to be me? Why do the donkeys get loose? And why do I have to go? Now, Saul's about 30 years old. And he's sent on a mission by his dad to chase down donkeys. So sure enough, Saul goes out with his servant. They wander around for three days through the countryside. It gets so bad, so bad they get lost. And it gets so bad when they're lost that they actually ask for directions. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, they're, like, they're in deep weeds. And not only do they ask for directions, which men never do, and young men especially never do, but they ask these young men, ask some young women for directions, which is so humiliating. They end up trying to find the seer, the one who's the prophet, the one who could, who could speak for God and would know where the lost donkeys are. They're like, can you tell us where we could find the seer? And that's where they are in this story as they're wandering around. Then skip down to verse 14. It says this, they went up to the town and as they were entering it, there was Samuel who's the seer, the prophet. There was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I've looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So Samuel, the prophet, sees Saul first. Well, of course he did. He stands up a head taller than everybody else. He's the first one you notice anywhere. Samuel sees Saul first, and, and, and here's Saul standing out, which bothers him. And he goes, uh, Samuel, Samuel and Saul begin to have a conversation about this. And you get to verse 18. Saul approached Samuel in a gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I'm the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me. And in the morning I will send you on your way, and I will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, don't worry about them. They've been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? 
Saul answered, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Samuel says to Saul, is is not your life and the life of your family, are they not the desire of the whole country? In other words, Saul, everybody's looking for you. Saul goes, nobody's looking for me. I'm Saul. No, I'm 30 years old and I'm wandering around chasing donkeys and I end up in a podunk town called Zuff. I've been to podunk. It's in Vermont. And did you, know there's a, did you know there's a lower podunk and an upper podunk? And they're nowhere close to Zuff. But if you end up in Zuff, you are totally lost. And that's Saul. And Samuel says, you are the desire of the nation. Everybody's got their eyes on you. Everybody wants to follow you. He goes, nobody wants to follow me. He says, I'm the least of the smallest. I come from the smallest tribe and the smallest clan and the least important family. I'm the smallest of the least. Now, at Lakeside, we have this value that we, that we really believe in that says we love meekness. And sometimes we confuse meekness with weakness, like, well, we love weakness. No, we don't. We love meekness, but meekness is always undergirded with strength. You cannot practice biblical meekness unless you have some strength. So when Saul says, I'm the smallest of the least, he's not practicing meekness because there's no strength in him. There's no, there's no background of power in his heart. He goes, I'm the smallest of the least. And how can you say that everyone's looking for me? Saul's family had power, but he never believed that he had power. So Samuel ignores his fear and says, hey, it doesn't matter what you think. We're having a banquet today, and you are the guest of, guest of honor. Come up and eat with us. I've got a special cut of meat set aside for you. Come on to the banquet. Go down to chapter 10, verse 1. After the banquet, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelza on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about my son? And then you go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. And after that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there's a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Samuel anoints Saul in a private coronation. Only Saul and Samuel know that Saul is being anointed as king. It's a private ceremony, but a public one is coming. 
and then Samuel to confirm for Saul that, that this is actually going to happen. This kingdom is going to come to you. He tells him, this is what's going to happen today. You're going to come into some people about, who are going to talk about donkeys. That's your past life. Never mind. You're going to come to some people who are going to talk about worship. They've got all the fixings for the worship. They've got the sacrifice and the offerings and the, and the wine to pour out before the Lord. Because the king is always going to be connected to God in worship. And then you're going to come to some prophets and they're going to be prophesying. And you're going to join up with those prophets. And then the Spirit of God is going to come upon you powerfully. And when he does, you will be changed into a different person. When the Spirit of God is in you, power comes with him. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God comes in you. And when he comes in you, power comes with him. And don't ever look at your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't look at your life and go, I'm nothing. I've got nothing. I've got no power. I've got no influence. I've got nothing. Yes, you do. You have the Spirit of God in you. And when he comes in, he comes with power and his mission in you is life change. His mission in you is to change you into a different person. The mission at Lakeside Church that we think God has given to us is to transform as many people as possible into passionate and productive followers of Jesus. Transformation is exactly what happened to Saul. It's exactly what God wants to happen to us. Chapter 10, verse 17 says, Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mitzpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you've now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. You have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Because you want a king, you've been asking for a king, I'm going to give you a king. Everybody show up at Mitzpah on this day. There's going to be a lottery. And whoever wins the lottery will be king. Verse 20. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? The Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. He's hiding out with the luggage. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. They do the lottery and the tribe of Benjamin is chosen. As the lottery continues, the, 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 the clan of Matri was chosen. As the lottery continued, the family of Kish was chosen. And now you can just see Kish, a man of standing, a man of power going, that's right, uh-huh, my tribe, my clan, my family. 
And I'm pretty sure he's leaning into it like, they're going to choose me. But they didn't. They skipped his generation and went down to the next generation, and they picked Saul. And so they said, Saul, come on, man. You're going to be king. Come up. Nobody answered. They, they called for him again. Nobody answered. They called again. No, nobody answered. And finally, they, they, they said, we, got, we better ask God if we got this right. They said, God, has he come up yet? God said, sure. He's hiding in the baggage. Do you ever find yourself hiding in the baggage in this life? Aren't we prone to hide in the baggage? They ran over to the baggage and they found him hiding there. And so they stood him up. And as, they, as he stood up, they went, he's so tall and frightened. And those didn't go together. But they said, you're so tall and you're so frightened. But when the Spirit of God comes on you, you don't have to be. When the Spirit of God comes into your life and he brings his power, which is transformational, you do not have to be afraid. Jesus, I pray for us today that we would not fear but that we would acknowledge that you come into our lives with your spirit. And when your spirit comes in among us, you give us your power. Not to be men and women of standing, but to be men and women, children who practice meekness, who practice your power for the benefit of others around us. Lord, would you lead us in the path you have for us. Lead us in your power. Lead us by your spirit. In the name of Christ, our Savior, amen. I want you to hear a little bit more about what we're talking about today with the Spirit of God working in us and the power that comes from Him and how that overcomes fear in our life. We're going to do some different things in this series about how we present the message to you. But before we get to that today, I want you to meet a friend of mine, a new friend of mine. So for months, we've been looking for uh, people to fill the roles we have here at Lakeside called Pastor of Adult Ministries. And Alicia, who you've already seen today, uh, has filled one of those roles. And then we've invited Ryan Reed to come in and fill the other. So he's about 13, 14 days in the, in the journey right now, yeah, right? So yeah. why don't you welcome Ryan Reed, please? So uh, let's get, let people get to know you first. Uh, Ryan, introduce, like, who, who, who's your family? Who, sure. Who'd you bring with you from Washington? Stuff Everybody. like that. Uh, Everybody. Yeah, so I've been married to my wife, Lauren, for 10 years, and we have a five-year-old named Liam and a three-year-old named Adelaide, and we just moved down from outside of Tacoma, Washington, uh, where it's a lot cooler than, than it is here, and so, but we're excited to be here. Yeah, so when it's a lot cooler or when it's a lot hotter, what do you guys like to do together as a family? Well, we're still exploring what we do when it's a lot hotter. Okay, uh, we call it air conditioning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as a family, we love to just go explore and go on adventures, take the kids out swimming and playing outside, be outside as much as we can. Uh, Laura and I love to travel together. We love to kayak and to just be outside doing uh, whatever we can when it's Less than like 85. <laughs> okay, well, wait till January. Yeah, we'll be yeah. there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get so, to that. Uh, and I love uh, swimming, cycling, running, and that sort of thing. Awesome. So, good. Yeah. Good place for it, right? Yeah, here. absolutely. Yeah. 
Uh, tell us about your faith story. How'd you come to Jesus? What's, what's he doing in your life these days? Sure, yeah. I grew up in the church as a pastor's kid uh, and lived up to all those stereotypes uh, and didn't really know Jesus uh, in high school. Uh, we went through a church split and what I saw in the church didn't represent what I thought Jesus was supposed to be like and what had been taught to me. And so I kind of kind of walked away. I wouldn't say I was a, an atheist or anything like that. I just was a, a nun, a religious nun. Uh, like, but a, like a, like a, we're in not, habit, yeah, not a habit nun, like no, an N-O-N-E nun. Oh, yeah, N-O-N-E. Okay, yeah. good. All right. Just making they, sure yeah, we know a good clarification. what we have here. That would be a journey. Yeah, it would be. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I got to, uh, when I was graduating high school, I, you know, every 18 year old kind of figure out what you want to do with your life. Uh, and I didn't know anything other than religion and, and philosophy and theology because I enjoyed those conversations even though I wasn't practicing. So I thought, I'll go to Bible college because everyone gets into Bible college. Uh, <laughs> and so I went to Bible college, and it was there that I encountered Jesus uh, through some professors that allowed me to process, be angry with God, and that Jesus can handle my anger to ask questions and be skeptical and really work through that and, and go on a journey with Jesus that didn't just have to be um, kind of this you know, nice, perfect Sunday school relationship with Jesus, that there's a process and there are highs and lows with that and working yeah. through that. And that's still a process today. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, so your, t- your official title is Pastor of Adult Ministries slash The Well-Crafted Life. Yeah. So you're, our target for you is really to focus in on th- this thing we call The Well-Crafted Life, which is what it looks like to follow Jesus. What are you hoping for to lead us into as far as that goes? Yeah, the well-crafted life, the way you know, our conversations and, uh, on the leadership team have revolved around the idea of rhythms and that we all have rhythms in our lives, things that we do, routines, and that we practice. And, and uh, my heart's really that we get to a place where the well-crafted life rhythms infiltrate everything that we do, uh, that they are a key part of how we live and we apply those every day. And so we learn on that through small groups, through Sunday teaching, through uh, fun events and just through our walk with Jesus that we start implementing these rhythms that kind of become almost innate in how we practice life. All right. So one of the, one of the launching pads for these, these crafts of a well-crafted life is baptism. You've yeah. got a baptism coming up yeah. soon, right? Tell us about that. Yeah. So there's a, a baptism celebration at all weekend gatherings on September 29th and 30th. I'm super excited because I love baptism celebrations. So I get to just kind of come in on the front end and just experience that right away. And so that's going to be a blast if you haven't taken that step in your journey with Jesus of publicly declaring and surrendering your life to Christ through baptism, then that's a Sunday to do it, and you can do it. sign up online. If you're not sure what we're even talking about with baptism, uh, you can take the Begin class, and that's on the 13th of September at 6.30, and you can register for that online as well. Yeah, yeah. good. All right. Now, one of the things we want to do, the Lord has given us a really gifted team of speakers and communicators. And so we thought during this series, we were talking about the Old Testament a lot with, with King Saul and King David. Maybe we'd, we'd do some stuff in the New Testament at the same time, but use different voices to communicate these things. And so today, Ryan's going to take us from the Old Testament into the New Testament and say, let's talk about the Spirit of God from a New Testament perspective. So yeah. lead us in yeah. that. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, we were just talking about kind of Saul's fear, and when I was thinking of fear and stepping into what God wanted for him, one of the things that, I'm going to look at you guys because you just had my back the whole time, uh, so you're welcome. Uh, so one of the things that comes to mind is learning to ride a bike. I love cycling, and when I was growing up, my dad taught me how to ride my bike, 
And you start off when you learn to ride a bike, you get on and you, you have training wheels. With the first steps, getting on the bike and you have training wheels and, and you start riding around and, and you're riding and you're riding and you, you, you figure out how to do this thing. But it's all under your own power. And, and if you were like me as a little kid, you get a little arrogant, got your training wheels on and you go. But then there's this next step. It's time to take the training wheels off. And you take the training wheels off and you think you're ready and then you see the bike before you with no training wheels and you get a little scared. You get a little concerned about what's going to happen. And if, if you as a parent, maybe you're thinking back to when you learned uh, and whoever it was that taught you, my dad told me, okay, you're going to get on the bike. That's the first step. And then I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to hold on to your seat and you're going to go and I'm going to walk with you and don't worry, I'm there. My dad's a liar. Uh, and so he, he walked with me and then, you know, you get going and you feel it and you're riding and you're like, yes, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden you kind of notice they're not there anymore. And you're like, how oh, am I doing this? What is going on? And you, you turn your handlebars and then what happens? You crash, right? And it's a horrible experience and you go and you swear you're never going to get back on another bike until you get on it again and you overcome that fear of getting on the bike But there's something unique that happens in that learning of riding a bike. There's a transfer of power there that goes on and that sticks with you. Because when you're learning to ride a bike and your parent or whoever it was is walking with you, they're giving you a push and they're walking with you and it's their power that is assisting you in learning to get the feel of riding the bike. And if you ride a bike to this day, you still have that power with you. You still have that power in you because it's that power that was transferred from your parent or whoever into your life that taught you what it feels like to have that momentum, to move forward, to find that balance. And and we hang on to that transfer of power in muscle memory. Now, you may not think about it. It's not like every time you get on your bike, you're thinking, oh, I feel the power of my parents. But your muscle memory is, in essence, a transfer of that power from your parents into your life, and it taught you how to go. And when we look at the New Testament, what we see in Scripture is that the way Jesus operates is he transfers his power, but the first step is overcoming the fear of getting on the bike. And then when we get on the bike, he goes with us, and he's walking, and he holds a seat, and there comes a point, he says, I'm going to transfer my power to you through my spirit, and it's going to carry you in to this ride that you have going on. When we look at the New Testament, we look at the disciples and their relationship with Jesus, and a lot of times we think, oh, the disciples, they must have been the cream of the crop. They were these really astute, intellectual guys. Jesus only chose powerhouse spiritual people to be his disciples. But it's simply not the case. Jesus chose flunkies. If you understand the disciples' roles and and who they were growing up, in Jewish culture, male children were raised to aspire to be rabbis because that was the societal high in significance and in power. And so when they were being raised, they would go to school and they would start off in primary school and they would begin to learn the scriptures. And by the time they were done with primary school, they would have the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, memorized. By the time they were between eight and ten years old, they had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all memorized. Now, I love Kids Fest, but I don't think your kids are coming out with all of that memorized. I don't have all of that memorized. I'm pretty sure Brad doesn't have all that memorized. 
But it's one of those things that they were so inundated with Scripture that they would know it by heart. And then the best of the best, the the A++ students from that, would then graduate on and they would go into middle school, so to speak, and they would start to study the Scriptures more. And then the best of the best of that would then go on to high school and they would study how to interpret the Scriptures. And then after that, they would go and they would start an apprenticeship with a rabbi. And they would begin to learn the ways of that rabbi. But if you didn't make it, if you weren't the best of the best and you flunked out of school, then you would default to your parents' trade, the family business. And that's our disciples. They're fishermen and tax collectors. They're not the ones that made it through being spiritual leaders in their community. They were the outcasts, the rejects. They weren't good enough. And so Jesus recruits these guys and says, hey, follow me. And they're excited. Of course, a rabbi wants us. We're going to follow him. And so they learn from Jesus over his three years of ministry. And you see throughout those three years of ministry, they got their training wheels on. And at times they start to get a little arrogant with their training wheels on, thinking, oh, we've got this thing figured out. And so Peter chops a dude's ear off. Jesus is like, whoa, what are you doing? You still got your training wheels on. You're not ready. And they keep going, and finally Jesus, he comes to the point where he is arrested, he's crucified, and he's resurrected, and he looks at his disciples, he's speaking with them, and he says something to them in Acts 1.8, basically, hey, the training wheels are coming off, I'm going to take you and teach you how to do this on your own. If you've got your Bibles, you can open to Acts 1.8, and it says this, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, I've got a mission for you. You're going to go on a bike ride. I'm going to take you and I'm walking with you, but I'm letting go of the seat now and I'm giving you the power of my spirit. It's going to carry you into this mission that I'm sending you on. And the disciples likely were starting to freak out a little bit in Jerusalem. Well, that's our neighborhood. That's our community. Okay, we can do that. We've been doing that in Judea. Okay, we're going to broaden it a little bit maybe. But Samaria, oh my gosh, Jesus, you want us to go to Samaria? Those are the people that we're not supposed to like. Those are the people that we're opposed to. And this is where the the disciples tend to be a little dense at times because Jesus already taught them, hey, you need to love Samaritans. But they would have still been hesitant and scared. and, And then, wait, in all the ends of the earth, you want us to go where? Places we've never even heard of? Places we don't understand? We can't do that. Jesus, he preempts those objections. But it's not on your power. We've taken the training wheels off. Lay down your power. I'm giving you the power of my Holy Spirit, and I'm going to send you on your bike, and here you go. And you're going to ride. And you know what? At times, you're going to fall off. You're going to wreck. But you get back up, and you get back on the bike, and that transfer power, the Spirit's still going to be with you and is going to carry you through this mission. And similar for us, we all have bikes in our journey with Jesus that we have to get on. And the thing with the Christian life is you, you never really arrive. There's always something next. There's always something more. There's another bike. And so when you finally think that you've got this bike figured out, guess what? There's another one parked right there for you to get onto. And you have to overcome your fear and get on that bike and trust that the power of the Spirit is going to carry you through that journey in your development and in your walk with Jesus. When you think you've arrived, it means you need to get on the next bike. 
Maybe for you where the next bike is, is you need to get over your fear of serving. Maybe your fear is, I I don't have any gifts. I don't even know where to serve people. Maybe your fear in serving is, I can't go into middle school ministry. They'll overthrow me. I may not come out alive. You need to know that the power of the Spirit is going to carry you. Get on the bike, and He's going to equip you in that. Maybe your fear is generosity, and you've been holding on to your resources because you fear going without, not having enough, and and maybe you aren't trusting that God's going to provide, and you need to get on that bike and trust the Spirit's going to lead you. Maybe your fear is this whole Jesus thing as a whole. And you haven't gotten on that bike yet, and you're not really sure if it makes sense, if you resonate with it. I want to encourage you to take that step of get on the bike and trust that God's got you. He's going to carry you. And maybe that comes through getting on the bike and saying, I'm going to declare that Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to surrender him through baptism. I'm going to commit to that. As Brad and I just talked about, we have the opportunity for that coming very soon. But wherever you are, you all have a bicycle to get on. You also have a God that's there holding on to the seat, getting ready to transfer his power into you and send you. But you have to lay down your power first because fear really stems from a desire to control. And you have to lay that down and say, Jesus, I trust you. Transfer your power to me and send me on my way. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you teach us, that you lead us, that you send us on our bicycles, on the journeys that you have called us to. And Lord, we are encouraged by that. But Lord, let us take that first step of getting on the bike and trusting you. Lord, whatever our next bike is, whatever the next part of our journey is, give us the courage to step into it, to hop on with no training wheels, and to ride trusting you and your power. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.